Good evening, church. Imagine a scenario where you have a really, really godly leader. The nation prospers. It's really safe. Things are going well. People worship the Lord God exclusively. And it's all really in thanks to this godly leader. And then he makes a big mistake, and then he dies, and he's gone. That was the reality that George looked at this morning in King Isaiah. Godly man, 52 years as king of Judah. That's a long time. He was like David, his father and ancestor before him, exclusively worshipped the Lord as his God. But in his old age, of course, as George very much pointed out, he got arrogant, became prideful, said, I'm the king, I can be a priest too. God struck him with leprosy, and he died a leper. He did not respect the holiness of the temple. He did not respect the holiness of the priesthood. And he certainly did not respect the holiness of God. And that's going to take us to tonight's lesson. We're going to be looking at the holiness of God as seen through the person of Jesus. Turn over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. It's good to see everyone here. And if you're visiting with us, uh, you're welcome guests. Uh, we're grateful that you are here. Stick around. We're friendly. We'd just like to get to know you. Shake your hand. Uh, if you're using that Red Pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 6, that's going to be on page number 678, roughly right in the middle of your Bibles. This is where our main text will be. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, let's go ahead and read that together. Read in your Bibles with me, and then we'll break it down verse by verse and see what all this means. Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, Isaiah is speaking. He says, In the year that King Isaiah died, that's the guy we talked about, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. That is a passage that more than incites our imaginations when it comes to the very throne room of heaven itself, and the Lord is sitting upon it. Isaiah said, he saw the Lord, verse 5, it's all caps, Lord, he saw Yahweh somehow lived. Uh, out of this vision will come Isaiah's commissioning to be a prophet to God's people. And we've already seen in this series how God will sometimes appear to those he commissions. Think of, again, the burning bush with Moses. So in the year that King Isaiah died, that's roughly 740 BC, a long time ago, and the text says, I saw the Lord. Lowercase, but we, a capital L because we know it's referencing the Lord, all caps, in verse 5. I saw the Lord. He's sitting upon a throne. So very prosperous 52 years for King Isaiah, very temporary. 
He's now died. His body's in the ground, buried with his fathers who were kings before him. And historically, this is a moment of crisis for Israel and Judah, for that matter. In the background of all this, the Assyrian Empire is expanding rapidly and quickly. The light green is how big they will get to their highest extent after Isaiah. The dark green, maybe a little bigger than the dark green area, is roughly the size of the empire right now in Isaiah 6. They're a threat. They're violent. They're oppressive. Northern Israel, southern Judah are scared of them, and for good reason. And your good king has just died, because he got arrogant and got struck with leprosy. And there's questions of what's going to happen now with Assyria knocking on our doors. It's a moment of crisis. And a matter of fact, in less than 20 years, the northern kingdom of Israel will be wiped out by the providence of God with the Assyrians. They're a threat. But the true king of Israel is still reigning. The Lord. Isaiah is very much so dead. But he is not the true king of God's people. Neither was David nor Hezekiah who's to come in the future. They all die. Every prophet, Isaiah will die. Every priest will die. Uh, I mean, you think of now in 2022, it's a pretty turbulent time when it comes to world affairs. I mean, every single person, Joe Biden, United Nations, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, you name it, in 100 years, they'll be long gone and dead and in a history book. Same for you and I. Uh, probably in 100 years, even the littlest ones under our arms, most likely, will be dead, physically speaking. Gone. Uh, that's it. Very temporary but not God. He's always on the throne, even when King Uzziah has just died. He's never had a beginning, and he depends on nothing and no one for his existence. He always has been and always will be. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is the one sitting on the throne, even though it may look like chaos to Judah having a good king die, even though our world may look like chaos right now with its events, the Lord is on his throne. He's been king from everlasting to everlasting. He's sitting upon a throne. He has all authority is the message. Obviously, the throne room is the symbol of kingly power. That's kind of a foreign idea to us, especially as Americans in a democratic society. Maybe we got to go to Britain and go see the queen and all that. Uh, but, I mean, this is not just about kingship, but kingship has a sense of judgment behind it. They issue edicts. They're a judge. You think of King Solomon. People come to him for his wisdom. Where do they come? The throne room. This is where he dictates and makes judgments. Solomon and any king in the ancient world gives judgment from the throne. There's a picture that God is the judge. He is all-powerful. He has complete supremacy and complete authority. Many passages say this. God says later in Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, I'm God. There's no other. I'm God. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel, even while in captivity said he changes times seasons he removes kings he sets up kings king nebuchadnezzar himself said in daniel 435 he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done i can't god is 
supremely authoritative. He has the right to rule and judge. He's sitting on the throne. Whether you and I like that or recognize that does not matter. That is the reality. Uh, To put it in Western terms, uh, American terms, he is the Supreme Court, uh, he is legislator, and he even is the chief executive. He's all that. There's no one else to appeal to. He alone is king and judge. And then we see this phrase, he's high and lifted up. Uh, This phrase is used only three times in the book of Isaiah, and it's a big book. Uh, In chapter 57, verse 15, it's explicitly Yahweh, it's God. What's interesting is it's used in Isaiah 52, which is talking about a servant that God will send. He says, my servant shall act wisely. He, the servant, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That is very, very, very lofty language to use of this servant. Same phrase used for God elsewhere. Obviously, that's very important, and he's very distinguished. Um, But God is above everything. He's high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. In the ancient world, their ideas, right, is that temples were usually on mountaintops. Jerusalem was no different. But the temple is the location of where that deity or God resided. And we're going to see... God uniquely would dwell in the temple, but when you read all the passages about it, he's not confined to such a temple. He is the God of all. Um, Here's a picture on the screen. We're really seeing in Isaiah's vision kind of a mirror of the temple and the Holy of Holies. Remember, you have the veil, the high priest, one dude, one guy, goes in there once a year, Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. That's it. Once a year, as you go to the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim statues are there and all that. Um, but here's the picture of basically Isaiah having this veil ripped apart and seeing the Lord himself. But look at First Chronicles 28.2 on the screen. David says, hear me, my brothers. I had in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? Of Yahweh and for the footstool of our God. Look at how lofty and grand they're picturing God to be. He's not merely in this temple. Or Psalm 132, 7 and 8. Let us go to his dwelling place. That's the temple. Let us worship at his footstool. Check out the parallelism. Arise, O Yahweh. Go to your resting place. Okay, that's the temple. You and the ark of your might. It's calling the ark of the covenant God's footstool. That's how grand and majestic the text is painting God to be. Later in Isaiah 66, verse 1, that says Yahweh, heaven is my throne, the earth, the whole earth is my footstool. There's that idea again. So it's not that he is stuck in a temple. That's, that's not the message at all. Because I like the CSB. I'm reading out of the ESV tonight. Uh, but the, the CSB says him. Like the outer fringe, that's the idea. It's the very bottom of the robe that has come down from heaven and is in this temple scene. The whole temple, right, is filled with his train. It's like the very bottom of the robe is filling the entire temple. It's the bottom. God is in heaven, and his robe is training down into the earth in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant 
is his footstool. That's the idea. The cherubim, which would be back there, we realize are beneath him. In the ancient world, if you were a king, especially in the Persian, Babylonian world, you'd sit between two winged beings that look a lot like cherubim and Ezekiel, probably some influence there. Um, Their message is, nope, the Holy of Holies is not God's throne room. It's the very bottom. That's how glorious God is. Hezekiah, later in Isaiah 37, uh, he prays, O Yahweh of hosts, talk about that in a minute, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Okay, those are the beings that were statutes in the Holy of Holies. They were statues in the Holy of Holies. He's saying, God's way above that. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. But now in verse 2, we see some very different spiritual beings that have a very strange Hebrew word about them. And that is Isaiah 6.2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Um, this word is plural. The seraph or seraph would, would be singular. But if you just take this word at its face value, you have a very strange a word, a burning or a snake, a serpent. It's a heavenly being, obviously, here in Isaiah 6, because we're in the throne room of heaven. And it's a very strange word to burn, but also be a snake. And it's, this is the only time in our Bibles where it's transliterated. They just said, we're just going to say seraph, seraphim. But it's not the only time this word pops up in the Bible. It's the only time where it's transliterated, but not the only time where it pops up in the Bible. You remember Numbers 21, where the people are bitten by fiery snakes, and Moses is told by God, put up a bronze serpent. If they look at the bronze serpent, they will be healed. Uh, That word pops up all over Numbers 21. Fiery, burning, bright, tied in with serpents. Uh, Isaiah 30 later talks about flying, fiery serpents. That's a very strange description. Uh, some other places in scripture, Isaiah 14, 29, it's translated in our English Bibles as serpent itself, a flying serpent. That is a weird picture. Uh, and then, of course, Isaiah 6, where we are right now, is where it's transliterated, just seraphim, where it's here. Uh, these beings, when you hear seraph, seraphim, it's always in the context of of punishment, right? Numbers 21, the fiery serpents bite the people. The context of Isaiah is the people have been unfaithful, and God is about to unleash judgment. That's probably why we're seeing the seraphim there. They're connected with judgment every single time in the Bible. Um, That means they have serpentine-like bodies. I don't know how literal to take this or not. It's a serpent that's long and narrow. Maybe it's more like a lightning strike. But if you just take it at face value, you have something like this. Um, Isaiah had Egyptian influence around him. uh, But I think the literalism would miss the point. Um, I think that point is a job description. That we're talking about judgment. God's people have been unfaithful, and God's about to send judgment upon people who will not repent. And even these creatures who are majestic, and we can't figure out exactly what they look like, they cover their face. They're in the presence of Almighty God. They seem gloriously terrifying themselves, these seraphim, and yet even these do not dare to look upon the face of Yahweh. That's incredible. They have 
great reverence for their maker. They have great humility. To the best of my biblical knowledge, they're untainted by sin, and they still will not look at the Lord God. Pretty incredible. And what do they do? What do they say? Okay, so the seraphim have six wings. That's also you can find in Revelation 4.8. There it's not seraphim. They are covering the face, cover the feet, might be a euphemism. And with two, they fly. And they say in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the only time in the Old Testament where we see holy three times. You see it again in the new reference point to Revelation 4.8. But I think it's some sort of superlative that it's really emphasizing the utter holiness of God. Three times, holy, holy, holy. We define holiness, and you hear it a lot in church settings, appropriately uh, so. Uh, the, the Hebrew word could mean commanding respect. It's awesome, singled out, uh, consecrated for, separate, apart, completely and totally Pure. We could have an endless list of times where the word holy is used in the Bible. But when you think about something that's singled out and consecrated for, that's how the priests are holy, or the whole nation of Israel is holy, or there's holy assemblies. Uh, you and I are holy men and women, not because we're inherently holy, because God has made us holy through Christ. We're set apart from the world. The scriptures are called holy, or your virgins might say sacred there in 2 Timothy 3.15. We have a holy faith. It's pure. It's separate. It's distinct. It's consecrated from. But now, when I apply the word holy to God, now what? What does that mean? That's what the seraphim were doing, shouting back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. What can you separate from God to title him as holy? Everything. Literally everything. I mean, God is separate from everything that is not himself. He's the great I am, or Hosea 11.9. I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Uh, again, a heavenly throne room, Revelation 4.11. Those creatures say, you created all things. If God creates all things, I mean, the text is telling us God himself is uncreated. So God being holy... And perfectly pure starts with him being utterly unique and distinct from everything else, seen and unseen in the spiritual world. Whatever God is, he's perfectly that. He's perfectly pure and awesome in all his ways, right? We say God is who he is. He's constantly consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, He's a God of all comfort, he's dependable, he's trustworthy, and he deserves our highest priority, attention, service, love, zeal, and joy because he will save his children. You can trust him because he is who he is. He is described here as the Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of hosts. Other translations will say armies. It's a host is a multitude of heavenly beings around the king. God are these beings. It's almost as if maybe it's a courtroom-like setting where they're his attendants. Um, in other texts like this, it seems more like an army. I don't think those two have to conflate. seems like the same group because it's emphasizing judgment's going to come to unrepentant people. 
God is the Lord of armies, of hosts, because he's holy. God's holiness is a threat to everything that is unholy. Hey, that, I mean, that would include us like when, as sinners. That's, that's the message here. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Um, this could be an invocation, like the verses I cited on the screen, that may the whole earth be full of his glory. As we've seen with the sermon this morning, God's glory and holiness are inseparable. They just go hand in hand. The glory of Yahweh, he is holy, he is God. He alone has that title. Anything about God, about his holiness being a threat to everything that's unholy, I mean, people are scared, right? Sinai, the people say, Moses, you go up to Sinai. We don't want to deal with him. He's terrifying. Um, George and I had heard months ago when we were doing a podcast on the nature and characteristics of God, someone compared God to the sun. I thought that was a great analogy. Um, You read the book of Leviticus, holiness is going to equal life. You and I need the sun on this little planet to live. But if you and I got too close to the sun, we'd be eviscerated. I mean, you'd be destroyed if you're not of the same substance. And again, the context, if you go home and read Isaiah 1 through 5, it's not good news for God's people. God cannot stand in Israel's presence because Israel has been unholy. In chapter 1, God said, get out of my temple. Israel's survival is threatened because of God's holiness. That's the message contextually. And the foundations of the thresholds, they shook at the voice. These are the angelic beings, the seraphim, who are calling holy, holy, holy. They're shaking the foundations, and the house is filled with smoke. Again, Exodus 19, you think of God appearing on Sinai, full of smoke. Uh, even in the book of Revelation and heavenly scenes, it's like that. Uh, for sacrifices, there'd be smoke in the tabernacle or the temple. Here, the idea of smoke could be also destruction. Because again, the context in Isaiah 6 is God is about to send out judgment. Could be destruction. But God is holy. And the, the mighty seraphim who call out and shake the thresholds of the temple, they won't even look at him. And Isaiah knows God is holy. And Isaiah correctly is horrified to meet God in verse 5. Woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell with people who have unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's very interesting that Isaiah, he doesn't say, I was filled with so much awe and felt so much comfort. Let's take it all in and take a picture while I'm here. No, that's not the picture here in the glory of God. His first reaction is to confess sin, say, woe is me, I'm unclean. Coming before a king in any world, especially in the ancient world, if you come before him unprepared and unannounced, you're going to die. Like, that's probably what's going to happen. It made me think of Esther when she told Mordecai, if any person goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. And Isaiah realizes he's unprepared. He's unclean. Again, you think about, we had the temple up here on the screen a few minutes ago. Think of all the rituals the Levites and the priests would do for the ritual cleanliness and the lesson in that when it comes to approaching Yahweh. Isaiah, he's unclean. 
And he knows that. He says, I'm in no way fit to be before the king. As a matter of fact, he says, I've seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. I just talked about this a few weeks ago when we were looking at the angel of the Lord. Right? Moses was told, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And we tied that in with the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Manoah had the same reaction. Then he knew that he had seen the angel of the Lord. And he says to his wife, what? We shall surely die. Why? Because we have seen God. That's the consistent theme in scripture. You can't see him and live. Actually, Isaiah saying, woe is me in reaction to the king on the throne, made me think of some of Jesus's interactions with people, their responses to Jesus's power and authority. And Jesus, though he's God, is definitely a man. It made me think uh, when Jesus tells Peter, hey, throw your net over for a catch. And Peter, you know, to put it in modern day terms, says, we've been doing this all night long. We caught nothing. But, you know, at your command, master, sure, we'll give it a shot. And of course, it fills up so full, the boat almost sinks. He has to get extra help to pull in the fish. And what's Peter's response to that? Uh, Peter's response was, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Of course, Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And not to be irreverent, but considering all things in Scripture and the power of God, this is a relatively small miracle in comparison to other things. And Peter's reaction to the man, Jesus, fully God, fully man, to a man, is you need to leave me. You need to get away from me. I'm a sinner. That's his response. Uh, Isaiah is in the throne room of heaven. This is way more intense. He's in the throne room of heaven. He says, I've seen Yahweh himself. I've seen the king, and I'm unclean. He knows that. All Isaiah can say is, I'm not like God. I'm not pure. I'm not holy. I'm unclean. My nation's unclean. I've seen God. Surely I'm going to die. His theology is not wrong. He's correct. But God cleanses his people. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. He had taken with tongues from the altar. Fire in the Bible very often will uh, signal God's presence, sometimes his wrath. We're definitely seeing that here in Isaiah 6. Uh, again, fire, burning bush, same idea. Um, and then we have a burning coal that comes from the altar. Many passages tell us, right? The altar and the tabernacle, the temple, this is where sacrifices would be made to God. And the seraphim flies to Isaiah with this burning coal and tongs from the altar. And he touched Isaiah's mouth. He said, hey, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Israel, or excuse me, Isaiah's sin is atoned for so he can stand in the presence of God and live to see another day, right? And the message is Israel, the whole nation, God's people, must be cleansed for the same purposes, to be holy as he is holy. Isaiah's sin is atoned for. The Hebrew literally would mean a covering or a wiping away. Because atonement, all the biblical data... Atonement restores the relationship between a holy God and an unholy sinner. He makes us holy. 
So that gets into Isaiah's commissioning. I'm just going to read verses uh, 8 through 10 here. It's important to read. Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 10. After all this, same scene, same exact context. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, repent, and be healed. The message God's telling Isaiah is these people, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to my warnings of coming judgment. Remember, divine judgment is an invitation to repent. Even Isaiah the prophet, we just read in verse 7, the prophet is a sinner and has to be atoned for, let alone the rest of the people. There must be sacrifice, right? The altar in order for God to deal with sin justly. It would be unjust, as we've talked about, against his own glory to pass over sin. Unjust against his holiness. And famously, as a lot of us know as Christians, Isaiah prophesied of such a suffering servant who would make atonement. That language is all over Isaiah 53. I got verse 5 on the screen. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There's that same concept of atonement with a servant. Okay, I put Isaiah 53 in the back of your mind as we begin to wrap up. And I'd like you all to turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 12. That's on Pew Bible page 1069 if you're using that Red Pew Bible in front of you. The glory of the King, the Lord of hosts in Isaiah 6, and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 are shockingly woven together in John chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 36. Bit of context, Jesus is discussing and telling of his coming death. And he's urged the people to believe in him, for he is the light. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 36 of John 12. Okay, it's important to know the subject at hand. When Jesus, Jesus had said these things, he departed, hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, that they still did not believe in him. So if the word of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, that quotation, your Bible might have a reference. That's Isaiah 53, verse 1. So we've linked Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Keep reading now into verse 39 and 40. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes. Heart in their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Okay, that's referencing Isaiah 6.10. We just read that. Isaiah 6.10. So Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, they're woven in here by the Apostle John. Just as the people would not listen to the prophet Isaiah, the people are not listening to Jesus. But then read John 12.41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see back in Isaiah 6? Well, verse 36, the subject at hand is Jesus. 
We've quoted Isaiah 53. We've quoted Isaiah 6. John 12, 41 says, Isaiah saw his glory. And the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Woe is me. I've seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Again, those of you who are here, when we talked about the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, who is the visible Yahweh in Scripture? Who appears to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses? How can you see God and live? John 12 says, Isaiah saw these things because he saw his, that is, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. That's an astounding passage. The Apostle John said, yeah, Isaiah, when he saw the Lord on the throne, saw Jesus. It's incredible. He saw the Lord. This is the glorious throne of heaven that was left when God became a man and his son and the person of Jesus, the Messiah, to save the world. That makes me think of Philippians 2, 6 through 8, in light of everything we've read. Although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is a thing to be held onto, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. Isaiah, I mean chapters 42 through 53, is about a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, as prophesied of, that one would come from David, Isaiah 9, 6. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Our sin has been atoned for. It's been wiped away and covered at the cross of Christ. That ought to encourage us to pursue a life of holiness. For God alone is holy, and yet he has made us sinners to be holy. And if Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, who is and was and is to come, then he is not perfectly other, is he? He would not be perfectly holy, and thus he would not be a suitable sacrifice on our behalf before God the Father. But because Jesus is the Lord of hosts, because he is the I Am, he is perfectly pure, a spotless Lamb of God, because Jesus is holy. Holiness will not lead us to Jesus. It will lead to your own frustration and failure because we sin. It is Jesus who will lead us to holiness. If you need any spiritual help, this church wants to assist you in that. Whether that's prayer or you need to be declared righteous and holy before a holy God, we'd invite you to put on Jesus in baptism. Uh, Come talk to me or come forward right now as we stand and sing.